Good afternoon, everyone. This is Kathy Diamond of the Eleanor London Cote St. Luke Public Library, here again to present to you a short monthly book talk. The book that I'd like to present this month is a Canadian book, a book by a Canadian author and an actually a very Canadian story called Chop Suey Nation by Toronto-based writer Anne Hui. I'm not sure how to pronounce her name, but it's spelled H-U-I. And Anne Hui is a Toronto, as I said, a Toronto-based food writer who writes about food and culture for the Toronto newspaper, The Globe and Mail. She first told her story in a lengthy article about food and about Chinese Canadian food and how it evolved to become a Canadian, a particular Chinese Canadian kind of cuisine sometimes called chop suey cuisine in a slightly derogatory sense, or in her family, as it was called, fake Chinese food. So the book is entitled Chop Suey Nation. It was published in 2019 by the publisher Douglas and McIntyre. She, Anhui, was curious about the evolution of this particular kind of food. So remember, her specialty is she's a food writer and food, you know, food is a very trendy topic in the, has become a trendy topic in the last number of years. And so this is a young woman who's very experienced in all kinds of cuisine and what's the, what's the most popular and what's the most fashionable. And yet here she's telling us the story about something which, as I said, she's dubbed chop suey cuisine. Um, and she, how did she come to write this book? This is something that's very interesting. She was curious about the evolution of this kind of Chinese Canadian food. Why? Because she grew up, she's from Vancouver. She grew up in Vancouver in a home where authentic Chinese food was the norm. So for her, what she grew up eating was not this Chinese-Canadian chop suey kind of cuisine. It was real Chinese food because her parents were from China. So, so curious was she that she set out on a cross-Canada quest to research typical small-town Canadian-Chinese restaurants to hear the stories of the people who ran them and what brought them to the restaurant business in the first place. The way she sets up this book, and it's not a very long book, it's very easy to read. Her prose is very simple and very clear. But she pairs the stories of these different restaurants that she encounters on her cross-Canada road trip with the story of her own family. And what happens is, as the way the, way the book is set up, she begins from out west. She, she starts out in Victoria, BC, and her goal is to drive in 18 days, drive across Canada to end up in a small town in Newfoundland. And while she's driving across and while she's interviewing the, the owners of these different 
Chinese restaurants in different places across Canada. She also is peeling back the layers of her parents' lives. This is the way she sets up the book. So you have the travelogue interspersed with stories about her parents, particularly her father. And her father's story was very important to her at the time because her father was not well. So there was a sense of urgency she felt in telling her father's story. First of all, finding out her father's story and then telling it. So this is the way that she's put the book together. It's the stories of the travels and the Chinese restaurants that she, and she goes across the country with her husband, her very patient um, husband who is the driver, and uh, telling those experiences interspersed with her father's story that she has come to learn. So she, um, and along the way, what we the readers get is a sense of the Canadian immigrant experience. In this case, it's the Chinese Canadian immigrant experience. But I think that anyone from an immigrant background or having immigrant ancestors, and most of us in Canada do, it's, there's a universal experience, immigrant experience feeling to the book. So the book is autobiographical in the sense that she and and Hui, the the author of the book, talks about her own experience growing up in Vancouver. It's biographical because it really turns out to be, as a tribute to her father, the story, for at least what she can find out, the story of her father's life. And travelogue as well, because of course this is the this is the way the book is set up. It's the experiences driving across Canada from Victoria, BC to Fogo Island, Newfoundland. I had never heard of Fogo Island, Newfoundland, but that's where she ends her story. And as I said, it's her patient non-Chinese husband, Anthony, who likes the chop suey kind of Chinese cuisine. He was doing the driving on this very long and pretty intense road trip. And what was interesting was that almost every small community, not just large cities, not just the Vancouver and the Calgary and the Toronto and Montreal, but every small community, it seemed, across the country has a Canadian Chinese restaurant. Canadian Chinese, I put here in quotes, as she puts it in quotes. And of course, what do these restaurants all have in common? Chop suey as well as chow mein and fried rice. Chop suey is an example of a recipe concocted out of simple, inexpensive, and readily available ingredients adjusted to suit generic Canadian tastes. The author describes chop suey as, and these are her words, bits and pieces or scraps The dish was the only constant you would find in every chop suey restaurant from coast to coast. It could vary from place to place and city to city, she writes. Some used green cabbage while others had napa. Others substituted carrots or celery. Sometimes it was beef chop suey or chicken chop suey or vegetable chop suey. The only ingredient that was always there was bean sprouts. And why bean sprouts, we might ask ourselves. And the author answers the question. 
And it's like thought, ah, bean sprouts could be grown everywhere, anywhere, sorry, so long as there was water. You didn't need earth. This is the first, I guess you call it hydroponic growing of vegetables. As long as you have water and a bucket, writes we, you can grow bean sprouts. Chop suey. In other words, whatever happened to be available. So gradually, she tells us, this ad hoc cuisine became standardized. The consistency of the menu items in Chinese Canadian restaurants resembles that of an informal franchise operation. And why? Because buying a business was a way to provide an income for the family, no matter what their culinary experience was. The previous owner would stay a while on to teach the new owners Canadian recipes. So this is like, I have Canadian in quotes again. So this is kind of, you know, a little bit ironic and funny, but this is what worked. So these Chinese folks who knew what real Chinese cuisine was and whatever region of China is a huge country and there's, of course, different kinds of cuisine, but whatever the real cuisine that they were used to was, that wasn't what they were going to be cooking in their restaurants because real, authentic, whatever that means, but authentic, what they were used to, that kind of cuisine was not popular among the Canadian public who were supposed to be eating at their restaurant. So they had to learn a whole new Canadian version of what was called Chinese food. So the previous owners of these restaurants, the author finds out as she talks to more more and more of the owners of these restaurants as she works her way across Canada, the previous owners would, would teach the new owners what this kind of cuisine was, the one that would sell and would make their restaurant a success. So the menu seldom deviated very much from fried rice and chop suey. Those were the ever popular staples. Some of the restaurateurs would try more authentic dishes, but these were generally not well accepted. So they either toned down the spices and seasonings or changed the ingredients to suit Canadian tastes or simply invented new dishes. For example, the author tells us the story of ginger beef invented by a Mr. Wong in Calgary. Battered slices of local beef, deep fried and tossed in a mild chili ginger garlic mix, she writes. She tells of Lan Huin, who sells both Chinese and Ukrainian pierogies in his town of Glendon, Alberta. You know, people were inventive, they were creative, they did what they had to do. So you sold Chinese, the the Canadian Chinese food, as well as the Ukrainian pierogies, if that's what they wanted in Glendon, Alberta. There's also Bulogi Pizza in Dieppe, New Brunswick, which is a combination at another Chinese restaurant that she finds. And finally, in Newfoundland, where she makes her way at the end of the 18-day road trip, to chow mein there, which had no noodles in it. Chinese-Canadian restaurants were, and still are, very much family-run. Many of Hui's interviewees 
described growing up in the restaurant, washing dishes as soon as they were big enough, tall enough to reach the sink, doing their homework in the back of the restaurant, working out front when they became teenagers and could help out by serving, and so on. The families weren't always Chinese anymore. Some came from other Asian countries, such as Vietnam or Korea. They reflected the subsequent waves of immigration. And Chinese restaurants, I think everyone can relate, whatever one's background or wherever one grew up in Canada, there was a connection to a Chinese restaurant. As Hui writes in the beginning of her book, she says, how how did the idea for this book actually come to be? She said that she had been talking to her editors at the Globe and Mail, telling them that she was interested in looking further into this idea of Canadian Chinese cuisine. And one of her editors said to her, that sounds very interesting. How can we work on this and how can we expand this? So the author said to her editor, she says, you know, I keep thinking there's tons of great authentic Chinese food nowadays all over the country. And yet this chop suey stuff, this not Chinese Chinese food is everywhere still. Why? And so her editor, as she writes, encouraged Anne to develop the idea. And over the course of the next few weeks, they brainstormed questions that the story might answer. For example, the author wanted to understand how so many of these chop suey restaurants were so astonishingly similar. As she writes, at the chop suey restaurants I had visited in BC's interior, in southwestern Ontario and rural Quebec, Chinese somehow looked and felt exactly the same. Somehow, the restaurants all seemed to have the same red vinyl chairs, the same red tasseled hanging lanterns, the same paper menus, often printed on placemats, always printed in the same font. I also wanted to know, the author continues, how these chop suey restaurants were doing amid the massive influx of Chinese immigrants to cities like Toronto and Vancouver and their suburbs. The past few decades had introduced Canada to so many different kinds of Chinese, new ways of immigration from all over China, bringing with them very good, very authentic regional Chinese food. No longer was it just Cantonese, but also Sichuan or Fujian or Hakka. So many varieties that it no longer made sense even to talk about eating Chinese. Instead, it was Malaysian Chinese or Shanghainese or Hong Kong Cafe Chinese or congee and noodle Chinese or Chinatown small plate Edison bulb Chinese. Not that I know what any of these are, but the author says, so I was curious what all these different types of Chinese food meant for the chop suey stuff. I wanted to know, she continued, with so much real Chinese food available, 
were people still eating the fake stuff? I also wanted to know what life was like for those running these restaurants. There was one restaurant that captured my imagination right from the start. I had stumbled across it on the internet in a blog post titled, I Can't Believe There's a Chinese Restaurant in Fogo. The post was about Fogo Island, the tiny island off the northeastern tip of Newfoundland. And the post described, this blog post, described a woman living alone, running a Chinese restaurant in the middle of nowhere. For miles around, she was the only Chinese person in sight. Her life seemed about as isolated as I could possibly imagine. I want to understand what would compel someone to live a like a life like hers. The question I was looking to answer was simple, writes we. It was a question I would repeat over and over as I made my way from coast to coast, visiting the many Chinese, the many restaurants, and explaining the purpose of my visit to each of the owners in each of these places. And the question was this, how did you wind up here? What brought you here? And then she says, she continues, she says, so I forget exactly at what point my editors and I decided that this would have to be a cross-country trip because it just seemed that every small town across the country seemed to have one of these restaurants. And so she says, I began planning the trip, but I had to figure out how to do this. I ruled out flying from the beginning because flying would not get me to the places I need to know, needed to know about. I was interested in the small towns, not the cities with big airports in them. I like the idea of a train and why a train particularly, she writes, and this this she describes later on in the book, because the railway, if you know any little bit about the history of Chinese immigration um, to Canada and to America as well, what brought many of the Chinese people from China to this country, in this case, she's writing about Canada, to Canada to begin with? which was the railway. They were brought over to build the railways. But from a practical point of view, travel by train would be slow. And it would also mean that she would be bound by schedules, she writes. So driving seemed like the best option, except that she, Anne, did not like to drive. Luckily, she has a husband, Anthony, the ever-patient, long-suffering Anthony, non-Chinese, by the way, which is interesting because he finds he, he kind of makes a counter counterpoint to all this Chinese food. And he happens to like, you know, I don't know, funny enough or what, but he likes the chop suey kind of cuisine. He prefers it, she says, to the more authentic versions. Anyways, Anthony volunteered to go along and he was the driver. So they decided, OK, and they but the trip couldn't take longer than 18 days. That was the time frame she was given. So they started in Victoria and they drove all the way to this little island in Newfoundland in 18 days. She wanted to go north as well, because apparently there were rest, there were even Chinese restaurants further up north, but that would have made the trip longer and more expensive. So 
the one thing that she knew was that she wanted to end it. Well, she had this fixation on going to see that woman running the Chinese restaurant on Fogo Island in Newfoundland. So she decided that that would be the stop. They would save that stop for the last. So they would begin the trip on the opposite coast in British Columbia. And after all, BC was where the first major wave of Chinese men arrived in Canada in search of gold. So it wasn't the railway originally, apparently, it was gold. When these men disembarked from their long boat journeys back in 1958, Victoria in BC would have been their very first glimpse of this new world. And for Anne, B.C. was where she had grown up, where her own story and her family's story began. So she said it would be nice to start the trip somewhere familiar. So it was going to be from Victoria, B.C. to Fogo Island at the, uh, at the very other end of the country. And off she goes and they, they embark on this road trip. And she and they do it and they go across Canada, they drive. And so the book chronicles her experiences in the places she's decided and she had they have an itinerary. They knew exactly where they were going to go because she figured out which restaurant in each of these communities she was going to want to go into. And they do the trip when she when it's over and it's like what a whirlwind, 18 days, lots of driving, a very big country, lots of driving. And by the time she returned home, she had discovered a surprising secret about her own family history. And she turned this discovery, obviously, and her adventures in Chinese Canadian cuisine into this book. In an interview with the CBC, Anne Hui said, there has been a lot written about disappearing Chinatowns, at least in the bigger cities, we're seeing Chinatown businesses shutting down, which kind of makes sense as the next generation is moving on to do other things. I thought, though, that this might be the case with these, these kinds of restaurants then. But I was actually surprised to find that these businesses are thriving. These Canadian Chinese chop suey kind of restaurants why? How? She says there is often second, third, and even fourth generation restaurant owners who have taken over the businesses from their elders, which I thought was very cool. I saw that there are newcomers who are coming to this country, new newcomers, and they're choosing this life as well. William Choi, one of the men she writes about in her book, was a very interesting example, she says, in Stony Plain, Alberta. He is the mayor of his Alberta town, and he is the third generation Choi to run Bing's number one restaurant. This is the name of the Chinese restaurant that Mr. William Choi runs in Stony Plain, Alberta, and his other job is being the mayor of this town. And he did the same things that his parents, uh, sorry, he did all of the things that his parents wanted him to do. Because after all, Chinese parents, like other immigrant parents, you can re relate it to Jewish parents or Korean parents, or wanted their children too. 
You had only several, right, three obligations, which, sorry, I guess the joke is two. You have to study hard and you have to eat well. So in any case, she says that this William Choi, he studied hard, he went to university, he earned a degree, which is what his parents had wanted him to do. But after all of that, he decided that the restaurant life was what he wanted. He wanted to run this business that his family had spent so long building up. Running that restaurant, being a part of it, is still really an important part of his life. So she met the, she she meets along the way people, and she you know the, the point is to ask them well to find out their stories, of course, to see what their restaurant serves. But that kind of becomes secondary as the book goes on because the cuisine is generally pretty similar. So it's really the stories, the immigrant experience stories, and the stories of the second and perhaps even third generation immigrants that she ends up telling here in this book. She says, a few months after the road trip, I was back in Vancouver visiting with my parents. My dad was sick. And you know from the beginning of the book that Anne's father is not well. And you're wondering, is the book going to conclude with, yes, the road trip will will conclude with her meeting the owner of this woman who's running this restaurant on Fogo Island in Newfoundland. But what is the story of her father? Because she also spends several chapters finding out her father's story. And her father really hasn't, when she was young and growing up, hasn't shared his immigrant experiences with Anne and her two sisters very much. And, you know, people are busy. They have their lives. Her father worked very hard. And when kids are young, they don't appreciate the importance of their parents' story. And again, this is not just a Chinese-Canadian immigrant story. It's, it's, it's a universal immigrant story. So she's when she goes back and she realizes that her father is really not doing well and she starts to have, she'd been spending more periods of time in Vancouver because she lives in Toronto now and been having a lot of conversations with her father about what his life had been like before he came to Canada and the descriptions of his life in China and his parents' lives in China is also a very interesting part of the book, possibly for me, even more interesting than the Canadian restaurant part of the story. And so she said, I've been asking my father a lot of questions and there were so many gaps, so many questions that had gone unanswered. And suddenly, because my father wasn't well, we had this very real timeline in which to answer some of those questions. So that becomes, as I said, for me, it was the more, the more interesting aspect of the story was Was she going to find out what she wanted to find out about her father and his story? Was he going to answer her questions? I was asking him a bunch of questions about his restaurant and his career. He actually ran a couple of restaurants in Vancouver, and then he had a catering company, which was mainly pasta, roast beef, and standard Western buffet food at the time. When I asked him about the restaurant he had run before I was born, he pulled out the menu of a place called the Legion Cafe. I saw chop suey and chow mein all over the menu. And I realized that my parents had gone through the same experience of running a small town Chinese restaurant. The experience that I had traveled all over the country to try to document without even thinking to look in my own backyard. 
Family history tells us so much about who we are, Ms. Hui continues in her, in her interview with the CBC. It informs everything. I hadn't realized until I finally answered these questions and learned about my family's history and how we wound up here that a piece of the puzzle had always been missing. I would read the history books as a kid. She grew up in Canada and I never saw myself in them. I think that as a child of recent immigrants, we expect that to a certain extent. I had never even thought to question where we fit in these books. I basically wrote the book that I would have loved to read five or 10 years ago, probably even longer ago. And she's young. She's just in, I think she's in her early 30s. To hear people tell me that they feel seen by this, that they feel like part of their story is in this book, that is a very good feeling for me. It's incredible. It's probably the best, the most rewarding part of this experience. So she concluded at the end of her travels, besides that she finds out finally her father's story, her father passes away um, at the at the end of this, and she feels so lucky that she has been able to speak to him and get more of his stories than she ever would have had she not embarked on this cross-country culinary tour. But she concludes, and an interesting conclusion, she concludes with, Chinese Canadian was not fake cuisine. It was really a testament to creativity, perseverance, and resourcefulness, as she writes. And in that sense, it is quintessentially Canadian. Even though her initial question was to explore the motivations that brought the restaurateurs to Canada, but came to think, she came to think that the question really should be who they came for and not what. The deep love of family and better lives for their children brought them to Canada and convinced them that they could own and operate a Chinese-Canadian restaurant, even if they had no experience in restaurant business, they would work long hours scrimping and saving and as, as so their children could have better futures. As Anne Hui writes, bitter first, sweet later. It is a mantra for all immigrant parents and perhaps it is an apt lesson for all of us in pandemic times. Thank you very much for listening. Have safe and happy holidays and hope to see you in quotation marks again next month. Thank you. Bye-bye.